Father, as we turn those pages of our Bibles, we turn a listening ear also towards you. Like Samuel, we pray, speak, Lord, your servant hears. It really is a thrill, Lord, and a joy to be here in your presence, the presence of your people, to celebrate and worship, to lift voices, anthems of praise to you. But, Father, we also lift our hearts up to you, Father. We trust you with our hearts. We make ourselves vulnerable before you, Lord. We know, Lord, that you will deal directly with us, but tenderly with us. And we don't want to come short of any good thing that you'd have for us. So we ask you, Lord, to do any surgical procedure spiritually that is necessary on us. We pray, Lord, that you'd strip us of facades, bring us to a place of humility, sincerity, We pray, Lord, that we would be as broken vessels before you, that you might shape us from that place of brokenness to a place of usefulness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, somewhere around chapter 13, probably verse 22, Jesus enters into a phase of his ministry that most people call the the Perean ministry. That is, Jesus crosses over the Jordan River from Galilee and goes to the place that it would be more or less modern-day Jordan, around Amman, Jordan, and that area, up in that, those highland and those high plateaus of Jordan. And he spends some time ministering on his way down to Jerusalem. And that lasts from about chapter 13, verse 22, to midway in chapter 18, before he makes that final journey down to Jerusalem. But he's on his way there now. He's just crossed over into Perea. You might remember that's the place that Herod Antipas, the guy that cut the head off of John the Baptist, is in charge of. It's his territory. Galilee was his territory also, but he was very prevalent in Perea. He had a little more pull there. And while he's there, one of the Pharisees, who for some reason or another is a nice guy, warns Jesus that Herod wants to kill him. And Jesus doesn't back down. He just says, go tell that fox that I'm busy, I've got work to do, and uh, left it at that. We have a few more chapters of this Perean ministry before Jesus, as we said, makes that final jolt down to Jerusalem. And we left off last week in the end of chapter 14. And so we'll read it today and tonight and go over a little more before we hit into chapter 15. Salt is good, verse 34, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a thing that... uh, people talk about. I don't know how real it is or valid it is, but it's sort of a thing that's been talked about the last, especially few years, the last, let's say, 10 years. It's called a midlife crisis. And they say it happens mostly in men. He gets to about 40 years old, and he he gets into this crisis state. He wonders about his life. He wonders if he's accomplished anything, how useful he really is. What is his life all about? What good is it? Sometimes it's exhibited by weird behavior, eccentric behavior. He might decide to wear real flowery shirts and kind of open all the buttons up and wear massive amounts of jewelry to be hep. And people go, what's with that guy? He's He's goofy looking. And, you know, he just might have, you know, sort of shades of Elvis going on in his head. What good is my life? How useful am I? Actually, just about every 10 years, every decade, people review their lives. You might call it a decadal review. You actually, you know, you hit 20, 30, 40, 50, God willing, 60, 70, 80, 90. You start wondering, what did I accomplish these last 10 years? 
What is the purpose of my life? Where's it going? What am I doing that is worth eternal value? Am I existing merely or am I really living for something? I can't think of a better scripture on the value of the life of a Christian than the verses we just read. And you should probably take it in the context of the other teachings Jesus had when he spoke about salt and light. What good is my life? What value am I? You are the salt of the earth. And Jesus says salt is good. Let's talk about that for just a minute. There was value in ancient times to salt. And one of the things Jesus is teaching is the value of the Christian living in this world. You have a higher purpose than just getting a job, collecting a paycheck, and doing your own business and your own plans. You have a more noble reason for life and planning. You're the salt of the earth. And so in one hand, Jesus talks about the value of your life. and the other hand, he talks about a warning to Christians living in this world if the salt loses its flavor. The Romans used to pay one another in increments of salt. It was like money. You would earn it, and you would buy and exchange or trade things with salt. Hence, uh, we get the axiom, he's not worth his salt, because it was used as a means of payment. It was also a sign of friendship. In ancient times, if you would go into a person's tent and you would uh, sit down with him and eat a meal, and he would put salt in your meal, not just for flavor, but it was a sign of friendship and protection. You are in my tent. You have shared a meal with me. I am sworn to protect you while you are under this covering. Then later on, it became a mark of a covenant, and so they called it a covenant of salt. You would negotiate before the days of a notary public, and once you came to terms, you would break salt, You'd touch it to your tongue, or you'd exchange it and eat it, put it in your food or whatever, and you'd square up the deal. Salt was valuable also for preserving purposes. As most of you know, there weren't refrigerators in the New Testament. There weren't refrigerators up until modern history. Our forefathers, when they cruised from east to west, and they killed and carried meat, the only way to preserve it is to rub salt in the meat, to kill the bacteria. And so salt became a preservative to keep meat going a long time to stop corruption. So you have value. Salt is good. You as a Christian, the salt of the earth, are valuable in this world. Because you preserve the world from rot. Now, you look around and you say, well, you couldn't tell by looking. It seems like it's getting worse and worse every day. And it is getting worse and worse every day. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till the salt is removed from the meat and it rots so quickly, so expediently as the church is raptured off the earth that the only inevitable thing that God can do is to radically judge the earth in the tribulation period. It's rotten now, but just wait. You have value. Keep the salt rubbed into the meat to preserve it. Keep Christians rubbed into the world to preserve it from rotting. Let's have an influence in this world. Salt is good. It's valuable in terms of payment. It's a preservative. We also know it adds flavor. We put it on potatoes. We put it on meat because it gives flavor. And it creates a thirst. Whenever you have salted food, make sure you have lots of water, lots of fluids, because when you have salt, you crave fluids. So as Christians, we ought to be a preserving influence in this world. We ought to be, by our lifestyle, creating a thirst in people who observe our lives. Are you creating a thirst? Are you preserving society around you, people around you? Do people feel uncomfortable around you in their sin, telling their jokes, telling you their stories? Do they feel awkward talking to you about what they like to watch at the movies? They should. Not that you're self-righteous, but just by that preserving influence that you are. It's funny when people 
find out what I do. Now, I don't probably look like a typical man of the cloth, which I am grateful for. And if I travel somewhere, like on an airplane, somebody will ask me what I do, but often they will say other things in the conversation before they ask me that. They might express how they don't like this particular airlines and this stewardess is such and such and this person behind me and does this. And then after a while, they well, what do you do for a living? If I say, I'm a pastor of a church, it is amazing <laughs> the body language, how uncomfortable a person gets. I'm not trying to make them. I just answered their question simply. I didn't say, I'm a pastor. But just knowing what I do make, can make somebody feel uncomfortable. They shouldn't feel uncomfortable. Unless their lifestyle is such that they're ashamed of it. All right, you're a preserving influence. You should give flavor to life. And I think that Christians should exhibit such joy... I think people ought to look at our lives and say, now, now that's a flavorful life. That's a blast. With that person, whatever that person's got, I want. So often, Christianity has been seen as the opposite, hasn't it? For a long time, they thought, the holier you are, the goofier you look. You don't smile. You talk in pious tones. You never crack a joke. You wear black clothes. Of course, that's sort of hep nowadays in some circles. But we had to exhibit joy, bring flavor, and then also to create a thirst. So all those are positive elements. And Jesus affirms, he makes the affirmation, salt is good. We need to be in the world. As you know, there was a time in history when the church also thought that if you wanted to be holy and good and righteous and pleasing to God, you had to be apart from the world. You had to live in a monastery, which defeats the whole purpose of salt. Salt doesn't do any good on a shelf. It does good on food or rubbed into meat. There was a movement. It started around the 4th century, a monastic movement, where people thought, I've got to get in touch with God, and I can't do it in the world because there's too many wicked people, so I have to go out of the world into a monastery. Now, I hear sort of the same thing put in a different view. Wouldn't it be nice, they say, to have a Christian community? To have a Christian neighborhood with walls around and it's just Christians as your neighbors. I don't think it'd be all that great. I work with Christians. I'm around Christians all the time. It's not as great as you might think. We're not a bunch of perfect people. We're not a museum of saints. We're a hospital for sinners. And I think if you were on Christians all day long, you'd be very disappointed. Because we have problems too, and there's nothing wrong with admitting we have them. There's health in that. But there was a time when people thought, if you really want to be holy, you lock yourself away. And there's, there's some funny, wild, eccentric stories about individuals who went to some extremes to be pleasing to God. Simon Stylites from Antioch buried himself up to his neck in the sand and was spoon-fed for months. He thought, this is what God wants for my life, to just have my head sticking out of the dirt. Aren't I a saint? What good does that do? Well, I guess I can talk to people as they walk by. I'd be a good witness. After they dug him up, he decided to live on the top of a pillar near Antioch. And he did so for years. He lived on top of a pillar. This is what God wants. I'm going to live on top of a pillar. A guy named Anatole of France heard about Simon Stylites and some of the other monks, and he thought, yeah, that's what we have to do to be holy. And so he improvised. He couldn't find a pillar, and he uh, still lived with his uh, family at home. And so he put a chair on top of his dining room table. That was his pillar, and he sat in with a rope. And he began to meditate, he began to pray, and that only lasted a couple days. His family came home. 
and thought the obvious. This guy's a goofball. And he finally wrote and he said, I found that it is harder to be a saint in your own family. It's much easier to go out on top of a pillar out in the desert away from people. Well, sure it is, but that's exactly what Jesus never intended. He never intended that. He said, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one while they're in it. You're salt. You're good. You do a lot of good here. And God has a job for you and I to do. Now the warning. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If salt loses its strength, its bite, its flavor, then it is not accomplishing its intended purpose. And when something is not fulfilling its intended purpose, well, then what good is it? If you have a car that doesn't drive, what good is it? If you have a golf club that doesn't have a head, what good is it? If salt is not adding flavor, preserving from rot, well, then you throw it away. In ancient times, in the ovens, the ovens where they bake their bread, the women at the bottom, there's, a, there's tile at the bottom of the ovens. And there was a layer of salt at the bottom of the oven and then dirt on top of that. And the salt kept the heat and radiated the heat in for a longer period of time. But after a while, the salt in the oven sort of lost its ability to retain heat. And after a while, they would take the salt out, throw it on the dunghill or on the pathway, and replenish it with new salt. Then there was some salt that was impure in and of itself. It really wasn't any good because you couldn't refine out the impurities enough. And so they would simply throw it out on the pathway where people would walk on it. What Jesus is saying is this, I affirm that you are important in this world. Therefore, fulfill your intended purpose. Be salty. If you do not fulfill your intended purpose, if you lose your edge, lose your punch, lose your purpose, then you will be trodden down by the world around you. You'll be swallowed up by the world that is around you. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I can think of someone that comes to my mind offhand who did this, Samson. What potential? A judge, a deliverer of Israel, a leader among God's people. A man who was very strong, at first spiritually, but also physically. He took a vow, remember, a Nazarite vow. He didn't have his strength because he had long hair. That's a fallacy. He had strength because he made a commitment to God and the long hair was the vow of a Nazarite and it was a symbol of the commitment in his heart that he made to God. That's why he was strong. And when that hair was cut off, he also relinquished that spiritual commitment to Delilah. He was weak in the flesh. He was strong in so many other areas, but he had an Achilles heel like everybody else, and that was beautiful women. He just put a beautiful woman around him, and the guy folds. No strength, no stamina. And Delilah tempted him day after day, and like an idiot, he let her tempt him. You know, she kept saying, oh, Samson, honey, darling, you big hunk, and just, you know, poured on all of the accolades and she said, tell me the secret of your great strength. And every time he lied to her, he found himself bound and the Philistines came in to destroy him. Now, after about the fourth or fifth time, you think the guy would say, this is not a good chick to date. <laughs> I can figure that out. But he was blinded in a spiritual sense to what was happening. Such potential, such wasted potential. He lost his flavor. And he was crushed, literally, by the world around him. He was sold as a slave. His eyes were put out. He became sort of like a beast of burden, grinding in the temple of the Philistines until God gave him his strength back. 
and the temple fell and crushed him and everybody else. So it's an affirmation and a warning as well. Now we get into chapter 15, and Jesus continues his method of teaching in parables. But there's a reason for the parables in chapter 15, and they're found in the first two verses. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. Which man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now please look at the contrast between the two groups in relation to Jesus. You've got Jesus. You've got spiritual leaders, i.e. scribes and Pharisees. And then you've got sinners, this nondescript group of people that include tax collectors. It was a term that the Jews liked to use for anybody who wasn't as holy as they were, who didn't agree with them. They were sinners. So you've got Jesus, and the sinners come to listen to him. They're attracted to Jesus. The spiritual leaders are repulsed that Jesus would receive sinners. Now, their accusation was correct. Jesus did receive sinners. That's what I love about Jesus. Those stuffy religious prudes wouldn't receive anybody unless they looked, talked, and acted just like them. The Bible says the common people listened to Jesus gladly. They could relate to him. And the sinners were attracted to Jesus Christ. That's why he spoke this parable, the second parable beginning in uh, verse 8, and the third parable beginning in verse 11. The whole chapter is one parable after the other, teaching exactly the same truths with a couple little variations. Now, by looking at just the first couple verses, we notice a few things. They're implied. Number one, the compassion of Jesus that would attract such people. Whenever Jesus was around crowds, do you know that he never saw people as an inconvenience? He never thought, oh, would you just please leave? I'm, I'm God, all right? Would you give me a break? I've got to run the universe. I don't have time for you. You're, you're such an inconvenience. He never saw people that way. He welcomed them. He often would spend all hours of the night with them. He had compassion. When Jesus saw the multitudes there in Matthew chapter 9 and 10, it says he had compassion on them for they were like sheep having no shepherd. That was one of the characteristics about Jesus. He was compassionate. I think we've told you before the term that is often used of Jesus in this regard for compassion or to be moved inside is a Greek word, splankna, which means guts, intestines, abdominal viscera. Because the ancient Hebrews believed that the seat of a person's strongest emotions were in the abdominal region. You say, why did they believe that? Well, you can understand. Have you ever been asked to speak publicly? You may not like to speak publicly. It might intimidate you to stand before a sea of faces. You wonder, what are they thinking? I know people that just get tremendous stage fright. You know where they feel it? In the pit of their stomach. It's tantamount to saying, in my deepest heart, I feel this. They believe that the feelings were down in the abdominal area. So Jesus had splankna. He had compassion for them. He felt and he was moved inside when he saw people. So this tells us about the compassion of Jesus Christ toward lost people. It also implies the condition of people who came to him. They're called sinners and tax collectors. Now, we know about tax collectors, don't we? Matthew was one. Tax collectors were despised. I think they still are for the most part, but 
They were really despised back then because they were hired by the Roman government. They worked for Herod, who worked for Caesar. And you would sort of buy a territory. You would collect the taxes. There was a minimal that you had to pay to the Roman government, but you could exact as much as you could get out of the people. And the people had no way of knowing what is fair. They had no newspapers. They had no television. They had no internet. So they couldn't communicate with people in Jerusalem or in other parts of the world to see what are you being taxed. There was no comparison. They had to just do it by force. So it lent itself to abuse. And tax collectors were ranked among adulterers and murderers. Lucian, the Greek writer, said that they were tantamount to the worst adulterers in Judaism. They were barred from the synagogue. They were barred from the temple. Yet the tax collectors felt comfortable. Isn't that interesting, being with Jesus? Now, I think that these were no doubt repentant tax collectors. I don't think they felt comfortable living in sin and saying, Jesus, let me tell you how he ripped people off today. I think they would feel very uncomfortable. Yet, the point being this, the very people that were outcasts by religious folks felt comfortable enough to come to Jesus and be accepted by him. Jesus accepted people that others wouldn't accept. That is what attracted people to Jesus in mass. Tax collectors and sinners were around him. But thirdly, this implies the callousness of the spiritual leaders because of their attitude. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. Tax collectors and, well, the Pharisees had a, had a phrase for people like you and I. They were called the people of the land. And stringent Pharisees, high-ranking religious leaders, were too important to hang out with people like us. We're the people of the land. We're commoners. And we are defiling to them. We have spiritual cooties. We have sort of this intangible disease. And if you were to touch one of their robes, especially if you were to touch their skin, they become defiled, unclean. They would have to wash because you've defiled them because you're just a commoner. And so you would never catch a Pharisee eating lunch. You'd never see a Pharisee at Gardunio's counseling with a common person. They hid themselves away and only met with themselves. But not Jesus. He was so different. But these leaders were so callous. I want you just to look ahead into verse 7 where we just read it. Jesus says, I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Then look at verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Pharisees also had a saying. And I think that Jesus said this in contrast to their common axiom. The Pharisees said, and it's on record, there is joy in heaven when one sinner is obliterated in God's presence. They loved judgment. They loved talking about it. Jesus said, there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. All of these things are parables because of the attack in verse 1 and 2. All three parables are one solid unit. They're in response to this attack. Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. The second one is the parable of the lost coin. The third is the parable of the lost son. You notice something in the parables. As the parables go, one, two, three, the object that is lost becomes more valuable. You will see that a coin, for sentimental marital reasons, is much more important than a sheep. And then finally, a man or a son that is lost is more important than either. They increase in value as they go. There is something that is common in all the parables. There's a lost object. That object becomes found. And number three, there is great rejoicing. And number four, there are some who do not rejoice. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He's really discussing two types of sinners. The obvious sinner, like these guys hanging around him, and the not-so-obvious sinner who are worse than the obvious, and that would be the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a very, very impactful chapter. J.C. Ryle said there's probably no chapter in all the Bible that has done more good to men's souls than Luke chapter 15. 
We're all familiar with it. Probably everyone on earth who has heard anything about the Bible has heard about the parable of the prodigal son, the third one. Let's look at the first one. It's a parable of the lost sheep. Which of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one until he finds it? Sheep were common in Israel, and sheep are common in Israel. If you take a tour with us, you will see shepherds in Bedouin tents with their flocks dotting the landscape. And I spent some time in a Bedouin tent. And uh, sheep are like their prized commodity. I was in one tent one time in uh, Israel. And they asked me to spend the night. I had a flight to catch the next, uh, this, that evening. I couldn't do it. But they said, spend the night with us. You know, stay in our tent and we're going to go, that sheep, we're going to kill it right now and we're going to cook it for you. And uh, we'll feed it to you. And I thought, well, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I got to go. So they gave me some curdled three-day-old uh, goat's milk instead and thought that, you know, they, they would treat me nice. But One thing about sheep, well, how, how do I put this? We know, that, uh, we know that Jesus referred to us as sheep on more than one occasion. And God's people are referred to as sheep in the Old Testament as well as in the New. There's an interesting characteristic about sheep that people who have kept them understand. They are not known for their high degree of mental acumen. In other words, they're dumb. They're prone to wander. And they travel. They they are excited by the herd. The herd instinct is prevalent among them. Uh, Dwight L. Moody said that when he went to Highland, uh, the Highlands of Scotland, that he met a guy who kept sheep, who kind of gave him illustrations about how sheep operate. He said, you know, a lot of times sheep, because they love to climb the mountains and eat the sweet grass on top, will go up there and get stranded. And what they will do is they will jump 10 to 12 feet into a ravine on a precipice to eat that grass. But once they've jumped, they're stuck. And, you know, uh, he said, we'll let them stay out there for four or five days so they become so exhausted And then we'll lower a rope down with the person to rescue that sheep when they're almost wasted. And Moody said, why do you wait so long? Why don't you just pick them up right away? He said, well, I got to tell you about these sheep. If you were to lower a man as soon as the sheep has jumped, the sheep get so spooked that it is apt in almost every case to jump off the precipice to its death. It'll just kill itself. They're that dumb. So you have to wait till it's utterly exhausted and it just can't move. And when it's helpless in that helpless condition, you pick it up. You and I are God's sheep. Does that insult you? I'll tell you what. It doesn't insult me. It thrills me. I don't say, good, you insulted me. I think, thank you that you're my shepherd. What an honor. Okay, I recognize I'm dumb. It doesn't take much to convince me that I've done a lot of dumb things. But I'm thrilled that God would be my shepherd. Rather than being insulted, I'm elated. Now here's a lost sheep. One among 99. One among 100. 99 are left. Now you'd think, okay, look, I know enough about business to know it's a 1% loss. Big deal. In business, you don't worry about that one little 1% loss. You expect it. You just move on. you got 99 others. But church is not business to God. God doesn't just look at the herd. God looks at you. You personally are valuable to him. And a lot of people think, oh, well, I'm just so, this is God's business, and there's so many sheep, and I'm just this one stray. I'm not important. You are so valuable to God. And the idea here is lostness and value to the owner. The owner thinks you're valuable. I hear Christians talk against themselves I'm no good. I'm this. I'm that. Be careful. Every time you enter into self-deprecation, you are dishonoring God's property. You might think, I'm no good. Excuse me. You belong to God. You're his valuable possession and you have no right 
to deem that which he deems valuable as worthless. He deems you so valuable that when you're lost, he'll look for you. And he'll seek to bring you back. And when he finds you, he'll rejoice. And he'll expect his friends to rejoice. Now this is an indictment against these Pharisees. Because he's saying, a shepherd who loses a sheep, if he finds it, will rejoice. Just like God, when he loses or yeah, a soul and regains that soul, he rejoices. And then the shepherd expects his friends to rejoice, just as God expects his friends to rejoice. And you Pharisees are not rejoicing, which means you're not God's friends. It's an indictment against them. God's friends would rejoice, and you're complaining rather than rejoicing. I say to you, likewise, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, verse 8, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace of which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The coin that is lost was lost by a woman. There are ten coins, and so we think that this is the head bracelet of a married woman. It would be like a woman losing the diamond out of her wedding ring or losing the wedding ring itself. It was valuable much more than just the value of the coin. In fact, the coin was probably worth about 25 to 50 cents in our economy. So you think, ah, oh, it's not that valuable. But it's valuable because it speaks of relationship. And that coin is lost. And since that represents the relationship she has with her husband, because of the love she has for her husband, because of the sentimental value, she's distraught. The sheep ran away the coin, being inanimate, cannot run away. It is lost. It is mishandled. It's lost at home. What a tragic place to be lost, is it not? In one's own home. Tragic to be lost in a Christian home. To be mishandled spiritually so that that person is lost eternally. The coin wasn't lost for any other reason than it was probably dropped or misplaced or mishandled by another party, maybe even the person herself. But she looks for it diligently until she finds it, and then she calls her neighbors to rejoice. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one what? Sinner. Why is it that we don't like to use that word? Why is it that we'd rather call ourselves victims? Oh, I'm a victim. It's not my responsibility. It's not my fault. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm a victim. It's somebody else's fault. Or we like to call things, well, it's not a sin. It's, it's a disease that I have. I just have this disease. It doesn't do you any good to give it new therapeutic names. You never alleviate the guilt problem until you take responsibility. You and I are sinners by A, nature, B, by choice. We are. Okay, maybe somebody dealt us a bad blow. Maybe our parents weren't as loving. Maybe we were dropped when we were kids. <laughs> maybe they shouted at us too much. Nobody has a perfect life. I could go back and I could dwell on all the things my father did wrong and my mother did wrong and how he neglected me. But Paul the Apostle said, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are before, I press forward to the mark of the high calling, the prize in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, there's joy in heaven when a sinner repents. And you know what? Sinners are the only one that repents. Victims don't. They see no need to. It's not my fault. I don't need to be sorry for anything. Now, we see him all the time in counseling sessions. It's not my fault. It's his fault or it's her fault. I'm a victim. You know what the two hardest words in the English language are to say? You know what they are. I'm sorry. You know what the three hardest words are? I was wrong. We hate to say that or admit it, don't we? 
The quicker we say that to God, the quicker we get forgiven. And some of you that are still carrying around guilt complexes, no doubt it is because you haven't come to grips with the fact that sinners, which are human beings in general, need repentance. And of course, Jesus is speaking about the, conver- uh, the conversion repentance. But I think that we all need to repent, even Christians. Well, no, that's not true yet. Yeah, Jesus told the church of Ephesus to repent. They were believers. He commended them for their words, but he said, you repent. There may be things in your life, attitudes in your life tonight, that you need to admit, I've sinned in this, and I want to turn from that and repent. You say, well, that's such a negative thing. That's not what Jesus said. There's joy in heaven. And God's friends will rejoice when that happens. It's a cleansing effect over one sinner that repents. And then he talks in verse 11, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. That's wasteful, riotous lifestyle. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want or in need. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have had bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring out the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This reminds me, this story is a perfect description of Johnny Newton. John Newton. He was seven years old when his mother died. Had a rough life. Until he was seven, his mother put scriptures in his mind, telling them the Bible every night as he was tucked into bed. Little memory verses, little bits of truth. When his mother died, he was raised by a relative. He became sort of a rebellious kid. He always wanted to go to sea, and so finally he joined the British Navy when he was 17. He didn't last long in the British Navy. Being a rebellious guy, he went AWOL and he went to Africa. And he wrote in his memoirs, I went to Africa and I went AWOL, I left the Navy, that I might sin my fill. And he did just that. He hooked up with Portuguese slave traders. He started selling human beings for profit to the New World. Eventually, he went from bad to worse, became a slave himself because of his addictions, was treated like a slave by a cruel master who tied his hands behind his back, made him pick up food with his teeth off the deck of the ship. If he tried with his hands free to grab the food, he was beaten, kicked. So emaciated, he managed a way to escape. He was on the shore of an island where they were trafficking in slaves, and a ship picked him up. Because he was such a competent seaman, he became sort of the second-in-command on the ship. One day when the captain was at another port and went off the ship and was doing business, when he came back, the whole crew was drunk. And he blamed it on John Newton, and he should have because it was Newton's fault. 
And with the back of his hand, he slapped John Newton off the ship. John Newton, being stoned at that point, fell into the ocean. Was picked up by a sailor. Saved him. Brought him to another ship. Shortly thereafter, he came back home to London, England. And a few days later, about a week later, he was walking through the streets of London and he started thinking about his early childhood with his mother now perished, who was a Christian, and those scriptures that she implanted within his heart. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Started out at seven, loving Jesus, rebelled, did all of that, came back, gave his life to Christ. He became one of the most respected clergymen in the English parliament, but we know him because of the song that he wrote. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. What a great testimony. What a great song. And he admitted who he was, didn't he? I was lost. I was a wretch. You know there are churches that will take that song out of their hymnal? It's too negative. You know the gospel's negative? It's very negative. It's positive, but it is first negative. It has to be negative or you'll never get to the positive. I am crucified with Christ. You can't get any more negative than that because crucifixion means death. Nevertheless, I live. Ah, now there's the positive. But it's not... Me, but it's Christ in me, he said. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Negative admission, negative confession comes first. I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. Then comes the positive. If you try to reverse that, you won't get anywhere. You certainly won't get to heaven. You try to... Just say, well, let me just tell you how wonderful a person you are and that you're just a nice person. It's okay. And you don't, you're not, don't say that you're a sinner. That's negative. You're not helping anybody that way. You're ruining somebody's life. And then you're responsible for sending them into eternity with false concepts. The most loving thing you can do is to tell somebody the truth in love. And Jesus tells the truth here through this parable. A son that left, spent everything he had on riotous living, like Johnny Newton. He came to himself. He came back to his father's house. His father wasn't angry. His father embraced him. Killed the fatted calf. And again, something is lost. Something is found. Someone rejoices in every parable. The sheep is lost from the 99. He comes back because the shepherd seeks him. There's rejoicing and the friends rejoice. A coin is lost. The woman finds the coin. All of her friends rejoice. The son is lost. The son is found. The son comes back. The father rejoices. Now, this parable has a little different twist toward the end. Because he shows a group of people who do not rejoice. And this is where the Pharisees fit in. Okay, let's read verse 1 and 2 and then we'll finish the rest of the parable. All the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, now let's pick it up in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Uh-oh, somebody's enjoying themselves. Can't have that. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come. Because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, notice how he refers to his brother. He doesn't say, as my brother comes. He says, your son. You know, parents do this, don't they? Oh, don't you love my daughter? Isn't she great? Oh, she's, and my son, boy, they're great. Yeah, they're my kids. Let them disobey. Honey, do you know what your son did? 
Now this prodigal has come back, and the brother won't acknowledge him as a brother, just your son. And notice how he talks so disrespectfully to his father. The attitude of ungratefulness and unthankfulness. As soon as this son of yours who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. This older brother was serving his father, wasn't he? But how was he serving him? In drudgery. You can go and serve out in the father's field and yet not be close to the father's heart. There are people who brag about their service to God, but it's, oh man, I work so hard and nobody this and that. Bad attitude. His heart wasn't with his father. And his heart is revealed. And this older son is like the Pharisees and the scribes complaining because Jesus makes such a to-do about these sinners and tax collectors. This riffraff. And we're so righteous. And here's this older brother. We're so righteous. He had the greatest sin. Your father, his father says it was right that we should make merry. Daniel Webster had an interesting way of meeting people. Because he met so many people, and he couldn't remember all their names and their conditions, what they talked to him about. When he would meet a person, uh, he didn't know exactly their, uh, or if he would meet a person again, he didn't remember their name. He would simply ask this question, well, how's that old problem that you had doing? And they felt so good. It's like, whoa, this guy remembers me. And they started divulging some problem, some horrible thing that happened to him. He said, it worked almost every time. People were so wanting to talk about their problems and me and this, all the bad stuff. He, he would just kind of, that would be his opening line. How's that old problem you got going? They felt, God, this guy really cares. There were ten lepers, weren't they, that Jesus healed. How many were thankful? One. One returned and gave thanks and praise. And Jesus said, where are the other nine? I wonder if that ratio hasn't changed. If it's about nine to one. We love to focus on what we don't have rather than what we have. You notice in this story, the son is not the hero, the dad is. And what's the point of all this that Jesus is saying? Simply this. With all these parables based upon this attack in verse one and two. The leadership who were calloused against the commoners scowled at Jesus saying, he receives sinners. Jesus says, not only do I receive sinners, you ought to know that God looks for sinners. He is seeking people who are lost. Like the shepherd who goes and finds the one out of the 99. Like the woman who searches in the house for that lost coin. Like the father who grieves for the loss of his son. God looks for the lost. That's the God you serve. God who looks for people that nobody else cares about. God sees you as an individual. The hairs of your head, he numbers. You're valuable to him. Are you lost? Do you feel insignificant? A few years ago, I cut out a story out of a book. And I've loved this story. It's about a Thai teenager, teenager from Thailand, named Sawat. Not so what, Sawat. Sawat had disgraced his family and dishonored his father's name. He had come to Bangkok to escape the dullness of village life. He found excitement while he prospered in the sordid lifestyle. He found popularity as well. When he first arrived, he visited a hotel unlike any he had ever seen. Every room had a window facing into a hallway, and every room had a girl. The older ones smiled and laughed. Others, just 12 or 13 years old or younger, looked nervous, even frightened. Then, or that visit began Sawat's venture into Bangkok's world of prostitution. 
It began innocently enough, but he was quickly caught like a small piece of wood in a raging river. Its force was too powerful and too swift for him, the current too strong. Soon he was selling opium to customers and propositioning tourists in hotels. He even went so low as to actually help buy and sell the young girls, some of them only nine and ten years old. It was nasty business, and he was one of the most important of the young businessmen. Then the bottom dropped out of his world. He hit a string of bad luck. He was robbed, and while trying to climb back to the top, he was arrested. The word went out in the underworld that he was a police spy. He finally ended up living in a shanty by the city trash pile. Sitting in a little shack, he thought about his family, especially his own father, a simple Christian man from a small southern village near the Malaysian border. He remembered his dad's parting words, I am waiting for you. He wondered whether his father would still be waiting for him after all that he had done to dishonor the family name. Would he be welcomed in his home? Word of Sawat's lifestyle had long ago filtered back to the village. Finally, he devised a plan. Dear Father, he wrote, I wanted to come home, but I don't know if you'll receive me after all that I have done. I have sinned greatly, Father. Please forgive me. On Saturday night, I will be on the train that grows, goes through our village. If you are still waiting for me, would you tie a piece of cloth on the po tree in front of our house? Signed, Sawat. On that night, he rode the train, and he reflected on his life over the past few months. He knew that his father had every right to deny him. As the train eventually neared the village, he churned with anxiety. What would he do if there were no white cloth on the poetry? Sitting opposite him was a kind stranger who noticed how nervous his fellow passenger had become. Finally, Sawat could stand the pressure no longer. He blurted out his story in a torrent of words. As they entered the village, Sawat said, Oh, sir, I cannot bear to look. Can you watch for me? What if my father will not receive me back? Sawat buried his face between his knees. Did you see it, sir? It's the only house with the poetry. Young man, said the passenger, your father did not hang just one piece of cloth. Look, he has covered the whole tree with white cloth. So Watt could hardly believe his eyes. The branches were laden with tiny white squares. In the front yard, his old father jumped up and down, joyously waving a piece of white cloth, and then ran in halting steps beside the train. When it stopped at the little station, he threw his arms around his son, embracing him with tears of joy. I've been waiting for you, he exclaimed. Lost sheep, lost sons. Isaiah said all of us, like what, have gone astray? Sheep. We're lost sheep. We've all gone astray. But then Isaiah said, the solution to the lost sheep problem is that the shepherd became a sheep and was slaughtered as a sheep. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Your shepherd, in seeking you, became a sheep and died to restore you back to the Father. When you come back, God didn't go, shame, shame, shame. He says, I've been waiting for you. And he rejoices, and all the angels in heaven rejoice. Man, doesn't that excite you when you think that when one person gives their life to Christ, that heaven goes nuts? They, they, it's like a party. Yeah, another one. Wouldn't you like to be that object of rejoicing? You don't have to feel lost. Your Father's been waiting for you. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for these very touching and poignant parables that speak about the love of God for sinners and outcasts that others would never associate with. You're a God who loves to associate with outcasts. And we're receivers, Lord, of your grace. For we have all admitted that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We admit, Father, that we need you. Lord, I just wonder if there be any in our midst tonight who have come to this study who feel like that sheep caught, unable to spring back up in need of a shepherd who would look 
and rescue. Or perhaps feeling like a lost son trying to satisfy himself or a lost daughter trying to satisfy herself on those things which never do satisfy. And some maybe have come and they've thought for a long time, I wonder if it could ever be as good as it was when I, as a child, made Jesus my Lord. I wonder if I could feel those feelings again and understand that forgiveness again. Lord, we know that you are waiting with open arms, ready to tell the angels to go for it in heaven and rejoice when one person would receive Jesus. When one person would say, I am a sinner, I admit it. And I want to come back to my Father. Lord, I pray that your church would never get tired of seeing a sinner come to repentance. I pray that it wouldn't become same old thing, that we would rejoice as you and your angels do. Before you leave this auditorium tonight, as you're opening your heart right now before God, have you come and you have wondered if you could ever come back, if God would ever accept you? Do you feel like you're in that place tonight where you're caught in a thicket like a lost sheep or like a son who strayed from his father and you've wondered, I wonder if I could come back? Would you like to know what it's like to have your heavenly father put his arms around you? the one who's been waiting for you and feel his forgiveness. More than just feel his forgiveness, be forgiven and restored. 